civilians and civilian objects must be protected. What does it mean? It means on the one hand side that civilian civilian objects must not make it the uh, the object of an attack. Uh, what is required under the under the rules of international humanitarian law that you must direct uh, your military operations and your attacks solely against military objectives and and combatants. The side who is subject to attacks has the obligation to take passive precautions. Hello and welcome to Reactives on the Byline podcast. I am Eva Kiori and this week we're taking a deep dive into the rules of war or international humanitarian law as it's officially known. The international humanitarian law is a set of rules that seek to limit the effects of armed conflict. But what are these rules? Who is eligible for protection and what happens when these rules are violated? The international humanitarian law is as old as war. The laws in place today are primarily based on the Geneva Conventions, the first of which was signed in 1864 by 16 European nations. Since then, things have changed. A growing number of nations have adopted other Geneva Conventions. Now, 196 states have become parties to the 1949 Conventions that shaped the international humanitarian law as we know it. It's worth mentioning that very few international treaties have this level of support. But what is exactly the international humanitarian law? It's a body of law that is designed to apply specifically in situations of, uh, of armed conflict. Dr. Knut Doermann is head of the delegation of the International Committee of the Red Cross to the EU, the NATO and Belgium. So it's a law that governs the behavior of uh, states and uh, non-state actors during the time of uh, armed conflicts. It's not a law that governs whether um, whether resort to armed force is lawful or not. This is uh, this is regulated by by the UN Charter. The content of international humanitarian law is very much geared towards the protection of persons in the end of another party to the conflict to ensure that um, their lives and dignity is uh, protected and preserved on the one hand side. That's the first part of the, the set of rules that exist. And then the second uh, set of rules governs specifically the use of means and methods of warfare. So you may be aware that, uh, that specific treaties have been concluded um, that prohibit certain uh, types of weapons like landmines, cluster munitions, or regulate also the use of uh, particular weapons like incendiary weapons. So these uh, these type of rules form the body of uh, of international humanitarian law. It's important to bear in mind as well that uh, international humanitarian law is meant to apply equally to all parties to an armed conflict, independent of the origin or the reasons for resorting to, uh, to force. And it's also not based on reciprocity. So it doesn't matter if the uh, the other side is not respecting international humanitarian law. International humanitarian law must be applied at all at all circumstances, and violations are not an excuse for uh, for lack of respect. When you look at the sources of international humanitarian law, the first one is clearly uh, treaty law. So it's uh, what states negotiate among themselves as being then uh, the laws, and this can uh, can go back when it comes to international humanitarian law to 1864 with the very first. Uh, Geneva Convention that uh, was looking at the protection of the wounded and sick on the battlefield, so it dealt with soldiers, and then also um, the medical services that would be there to 
uh, to provide uh, protection and assistance to the wounded and sick. And this um, source of law, so the treaty-based law, is complemented by uh, non-written rules, which is customer international law, and they they developed over over the centuries on the basis of a practice by states uh, recognized as being legally binding on themselves. So you have the two sources that uh, that constitute international humanitarian law. Unlike most international laws, the international humanitarian law applies both to state and non-state actors. Customary international law is law based on existent um, practice of states that's undertaken out of a sense of legal obligation, what's referred to by the uh, Latin term uh, opinion of juris. And what's interesting about um, international humanitarian law is that unlike most of international law, um, international humanitarian law applies both to states and non-state actors. Brian Finnecane is senior advisor at the International Crisis Group, an independent organization working to prevent wars and shape policies that will build a more peaceful world. So different states may have different treaty obligations under international humanitarian law. Um, and there are different bodies of international humanitarian law that apply in different situations. So there's a, there's a body that applies in the context of occupation. Um, there's one set of rules Um, a more expansive set of rules that apply to conflicts, armed conflicts between states, um, and then a narrower set of rules that apply to armed conflicts between a state and a, a non-state actor. Officials cannot stress enough that the rules of the international humanitarian law must be respected. But who sets the rules of war? Well, the, the, the rules are being made by, uh, by states because states are the creators of, um, of international law in general and in uh, international humanitarian law uh, specifically. It's true that when uh, conventions have been negotiated, uh, in particular the, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross or the organization that I represent had always a very specific role and um, from the very first Geneva Convention also to the to the four Geneva Conventions uh, of uh, 49, which are now the bedrock and the, the common um, common expression of uh, treaty international humanitarian law, uh, the ICSC indeed made proposals for conventions. And in fact, it's part of the, uh, the mandate of the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, to propose any new developments in the field of international humanitarian law. This being said, you have other actors then as well, uh, also from civil society, uh, um, the UN at times, who make then also contributions and support uh, then the development of international humanitarian law. But the ultimate responsibility, so the makers of international humanitarian law are, uh, are states, and therefore it is also the, the prime responsibility for states uh, to ensure that, um, that the law is respected and that they respect themselves the obligation that they accepted. The main purpose of the international humanitarian law is to maintain some humanity in armed conflicts, saving lives and reducing suffering. So who is eligible for protection and what does the term protection entail? Okay, protection is a um, term that is uh, used differently by different, different actors. So if I stay really with the concept of protection as it is uh, contained in international humanitarian law, It essentially means uh, a protection against attacks, but also an, um, a positive obligation upon states and those that are, who are bound by international humanitarian law to take a positive action to ensure protection and, uh, and safety for particular groups or objects. 
now who's who's protected uh, you have different levels or you have general protection that uh, that can apply to the uh, to the sick and wounded be they civilians be they military uh, because obviously once you're sick and wounded you're not part of the war effort anymore and therefore you deserve to receive then also, also medical attention without adverse uh, distinctions are only based on medical needs so that's one category of of person and one category of protection. Then you would also have prisoners of war. These are captured combatants, members of the armed forces. And once they are then in the hands of the detaining power, they are entitled to very specific rules and protections that have to be granted by the detaining um, power. Same would go for civilian internees uh, captured in international armed conflict. And then you have also specific categories that, um, that are entitled to sometimes heightened or special protection. So this may apply to uh, to the medical uh, services, um, so the, the, the doctors, the nurses uh, providing medical assistance, but also medical facilities like hospitals, uh, medical units, medical transport and so forth with very specific regulations um, that, uh, that apply to them. The same would go with, uh, with um, impartial humanitarian organizations that are meant to bring um, uh, relief into into conflict settings. They are also must also be protected and um, and and respected. So also that parties to a conflict have to in, enable them to do their 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 work. Sometimes subject to uh, to measures of control to make sure that that really the humanitarian nature of their activities is secured. And when it comes more broadly to uh, what what I would call the conduct of hostilities, so the use of uh, when it comes to military operations, civilians and civilian objects must be protected. What does it mean? It means on the one hand side that civilian civilian objects must not make it the uh, the object of an attack, and in addition, it also means if uh, what is required under the under the rules of international humanitarian law that you must direct uh, your military operations and your attacks solely against military objectives and, and combatants, um, that if you do so, if you create incidental damage to civilians or civilian objects, so creating incidental civilian harm, that this harm must not be dis, um, uh, excessive compared to the military advantage that is, that is being pursued. At the same time, you have also, and this is also part of protection, you have then obligations to take precautions in attack. So the attackers will have to make sure that they proper, that they use all the intelligence that they have to make sure that the target um, is indeed a military objective and that uh, that also attacks will be interrupted once they're once they get aware of information that the object objective may be civilian or that that the incidental civilian harm would be um, excessive compared to the military advantage. Also the side who is subject to attacks has the obligation, in fact, to take passive precautions. So also to make sure that civilians and civilian objects are not co-located with military objectives, because the closer you to, uh, to military objectives, the, the more likely is the risk that also uh, civilians or civilian objects uh, will be harmed in the course of the conduct of hostilities. So this is really um, protection as a concept based on international humanitarian law. On the other hand side, when you speak about protection, that is, or protection work, protection activities by actors like the ICRC, it is something that we are doing directly with um, 
with the parties to a, to a conflict. So we would engage in confidential bilateral dialogue with the, uh, with the parties once we get aware that, uh, that there are uh, violations of international humanitarian law committed or that uh, there's likelihood that this will happen. We would engage directly uh, with the parties to, uh, to try to prevent violations to happen or to, uh, to put an end but also to work then with uh, vulnerable groups or persons affected by violations um, of, um, of international humanitarian law to support them and to, uh, to, to help them to overcome uh, the situation caused by violations of international humanitarian law. One of the main focuses of the humanitarian law is armed conflicts. What is the framework regarding armed conflicts nationally and internationally? Well, armed conflict is obviously a very, a very specific situation, and it's only for that situation that uh, international humanitarian law has been created, because it's 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 a very special uh, regime, and it's construed based on on a balancing um, between considerations of military necessity and and then also considerations of humanity. So, if you look at look back at it, it's in a way a law that was created on the battlefield and takes into account that. Yeah, war and, or armed conflict is an exceptional situation where also use of force is being handled. And th for that purpose, international humanitarian law has been created to be a, an effective and relevant body of law in these extreme situations that exist. But international humanitarian law is not the only body of law that applies in armed conflict situations, in particular in non-international armed conflicts, where you have um, fighting that is taking place Within, uh, within a country, so between uh, the government armed forces and then insurgent groups, non-state armed groups among themselves. In this domestic setting, also international human, human rights law is of utmost importance. But international human rights law has also possibilities um, for, for derogations. And in certain parts, international humanitarian law is more specific and therefore has priority over human rights obligations. Armed conflict is now sort of the contemporary term um, used to refer to what used to be referred to as, as war, that, that war fell out of uh, favor as a, as a term of legal art following the Second World War. And so now the sort of trigger for the application of many of the rules of Geneva Conventions is, is the existence of an armed conflict. The law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, that, that applies during armed conflict. States may also have different domestic and international obligations um, during armed conflict, including um, human rights uh, law obligations. And again, the content of those obligations may vary between states depending which treaties they are party to. In addition, states may also be party to treaties that prohibit the use of certain weapons, such as landmines or cluster munitions. So that this issue cropped up in the context of um, U.S. Uh, transfers of cluster munitions to Ukraine recently, where uh, although neither the United States nor um, Ukraine are party to the treaty prohibiting the, um, the use of cluster munitions. Many U.S. Um, NATO allies are parties to that treaty. When the rules of war are broken, there are consequences. But what could we describe as violation of the rules of war, and what are the consequences that follow these violations? It's important to bear in mind that international humanitarian law binds both states and non-state actors, um, that is to say organized armed groups. Um, serious violations of um, international humanitarian law may constitute war crimes that carry individual criminal liability. That means not just the state is responsible as, matter, as a matter of state responsibility, but the individual perpetrators can be prosecuted 
um, for those war crimes. And that's one of the principles that emerges from the, uh, the Nuremberg trials following the Second World War. In terms of specific violations, I'll, f- I'll focus on things that are um, regarded to be war crimes. These include such actions as murder of civilians or those who are hors de combat, um, detainees, um, torture, rape, hostage taking, um, directing attacks against civilians or civilian objects, um, and indiscriminate attacks. Those are all would all be considered war crimes. You have a multitude of rules of international humanitarian law. And any violation uh, of any of those rules would be a violation and uh, possibly then also bring about state responsibility um, in the sense that uh, that states would be accountable for having breached these rules. There are differences in the in the type of rules that can uh, that can be breached, but there is an obligation in general terms for all states to uh, to take measures to suppress any violation of uh, of international humanitarian law, whatever the characteristics of a rule is. Any rule that is being breached with consequences on persons that um, that are entitled to uh, to protection by international humanitarian law, if they are breached, the consequences are, are quite often significant and very important uh, for those who are, who are then the object of these violations. And what can the international community do to ensure that the international humanitarian law is respected? And how can international actors mediate between the two parties in conflict? So in principle, the, the rule is that it's the obligation of, uh, of states, the high contracting parties themselves, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to respect the rules and to ensure the respect for the rules within, uh, within their, their, their jurisdiction. That's the first layer. Then there's also a role for, for third states or international organizations to ensure respect by trying, first of all, by not contributing or facilitating the commission of, uh, of violations by parties to an armed conflict. This can be, for instance, by, by appropriate control when uh, weapons are being used so uh, are, are being delivered. So you can make sure uh, that you're not delivering weapons uh, to, to parties who are likely uh, to use them in violation of international humanitarian law. But it can also be through diplomatic pressure, uh, diplomatic demarches, trying to influence then the parties. So that's a, that's a role at the, at the state level. And then, obviously, you have then also the possibility of um, of uh, criminal justice uh, justice system. So each and every state has the obligation already in peacetime to create the means domestically to prosecute um, serious violations of international humanitarian law, so that you have the uh, the right crimes in your penal code that you can prosecute, and then to create as well the jurisdiction uh, to prosecute. And then in complementarity, you have, if then also the the jurisdiction is accepted, you have then also international tribunals. So these are, let's say, the more more classical means of of ensuring uh, respect. There's the role of the International Committee of the Red Cross, who has a specific role in uh, in working for the faithful application of international humanitarian law, something that we do through our bilateral confidential dialogue with, uh, with parties to an armed conflict. There are a variety of organizations that monitor conduct during armed conflict, um, organizations like Human Rights Watch, organizations like Amnesty International, as well as there are various entities within the UN system, including through the UN Human Rights Council, that monitor um, conflicts and and seek to identify and um, call out violations of international humanitarian law. I think a few things that are worth bearing in mind at a high level. First, 
if you only care about violations of the law of war by your adversaries and not your friends, then you don't care about law of war violations. So it's important to, to monitor law of war compliance generally. Um, but I would say it's especially important um, when a state is providing um, military assistance to another engaged in armed conflict that it monitor how the recipient of that assistance is being used, how the assistance is, whether that assistance is being used in a manner that's consistent with international humanitarian law or whether that assistance may be used in violation. And that, that's, such donor states should be undertaking due diligence. Thank you both. I am Evi Kiori, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit your Actives to stay on top of the latest news, sign up to our podcast newsletter, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for tuning in, and until next week. This episode produced by Reactive is part of the Trust Project.